0: Good evening. Uh, on the one hand, I'm shocked I haven't been here before to what, what, uh, what, what many people believe is ground zero in Catholic education. <clears throat> on the other hand, you don't really need me. You know, the, the, the feeling is you, you've got everything you need right here. And this is just bringing more coals to Newcastle, as we used to say. But it's still a delight to be here. And I've, I've really enjoyed everybody I've met on campus, from, from the beginning at the airport to present. The conversations are, are never trivial. <laughs> They go right to the heart of things, right away. Uh, so I thank you for this opportunity, Patrick. It's a pleasure. It's been fun. Um, and I am taking on a rather vast topic, but one that has been occupying me, both practically speaking and, and in a scholarly way, uh, for many, many months now, and will be the subject of my scholarship, likely, over the next year. Uh, it, I think a good place to begin is this. So a few weeks ago, I received a flurry from emails from my students. And they say to me, do you know you're famous? I said, really? And they go, no, I mean really famous. You were on Jon Stewart last night, right? The Daily Show. (laughs) Turns out Jon Stewart had ridiculed me on The Daily Show. It was the day the US Senate had convened a hearing on um, the most recent mandate from the Obama administration's Health and Human Service Department. Regarding uh, requiring all health plans, including uh, those offered by religious institutions like this one right here, to offer contraceptives, early patients, and sterilization uh, in every plan without a copay. And apparently, John Stewart had replayed a clip uh, of I was on like Meet the Press or something in the 1990s, and this was the Clinton health plan years, and I was being asked <coughs> about how is it that if health insurance can cover Viagra for men. Why not birth control for women in every health care plan? And and I answered, and he played this clip, that Viagra treated a medical problem, but that, strictly speaking, birth control did not. And so his reaction, which I I can't repeat here in the chapel, um, was that, so, he says in that classic John Stewart face, it's a medical necessity if a man wants a... And he used the B word. Uh, We could use an E word. Uh, But not if a woman wants to avoid a pregnancy, he says. So I'll say it again. It's a medical necessity, he says, if a man wants basically an erection, but not if a woman wants to avoid pregnancy. Why do I start with this story? Because it's the thesis of my presentation tonight that first, Jon Stewart and a great deal of recent federal law have approximately the same view of what sex is for. Second, that this is a problematic view of sex, particularly from a woman's point of view, which is pretty ironic if you think about it, since it's being sold as for women's health. Third, that this view of sex has become the currently, in my view, greatest threat to religious freedom we face today, not only here, but I'll talk a little bit about other Western democracies, and that any campaign to um, support religious freedom has got to confront it openly, OK? So first, what is John Stewart and the Obama administration's notion of the meaning of sex? John Stewart, now I'd like to parse his one liner. My students came up to me that day and said, Oh, come on, come on, I've got my iPhone right here. We can make a YouTube video and you can say something funny and you could respond. And I'd say, Well, I'd really like to take it apart logically, which is not funny. And I am not funny. (laughs) Um, I'm I'm joyful, but I'm not funny. So I said, I can't take on John Stewart seriously. But I'm going to do that here in this setting, okay? If I was going to I need to parse his worldview, and and then if I want to look at what the government is doing, I need to take a look at what the government says, executive, legislative, and judicial branches, uh, as well as what is in between the lines of what it actually does. So what are both of these views of sex? that sex is not related to procreation directly, intrinsically, axiomatically. In other words, in any way that would condition any reflection on it, even in part. Only with this view could a comedian or a government conclude that if a man has a condition that makes it difficult for him to procreate, that's not a medical problem. But if a woman is in a situation where she can procreate, she needs some medicine, right? And it's got to be free. So if it's not all about kids, if if sex has nothing to do with procreation, what is it about? Well, it's also not about deepening a sturdy bond between a man and a woman. Because if Jon Stewart believed it was, he would have mentioned something other than what a man gets for himself when he uses Viagra in erection. He might at least have noticed that there was someone else in the room with the man while the Viagra was working, but he only spoke explicitly about what the man gets when he uses it. The only point of view, in fact, with which John Stewart's comments, and I think federal law currently makes sense, is a point of view that I first saw described Um, by this development economist from Harvard, Lant Pritchett. I met him in the Cairo and Beijing conferences at the UN in the early 90s. And when I read this, I called him, and we've been in good conversation ever since. So his name is Lant Pritchett. And he was reviewing another author's book. You may have seen it. It's called Fatal Misconception, about US foreign aid policy and its focus on contraception. And he says in that, Book that the only way, or his review of this book, the only way you can make sense of U.S. foreign aid policy is to presume that the administration had adopted a point of view that he termed sexualityism. And if you put that in Google, (coughs) you either get Lant Pritchett or you get people claiming about sexual orientation discrimination. It's a very new use of the term. It's his own and you won't see it commonly used. What did he say sexualityism is? I'm quoting, that the expression of human sexuality, expressing one's own, is in and of itself a positive good. And limitations on that expression are in and of themselves bad, Okay. What's another way of reading this? That sex is about expressing oneself, some call it identity-making, but it's not at all linked to what we commonly understand, what common sense understands, which is a combination of strengthening the permanent bond between a man and a woman, linking them together for the procreation of children. Professor Pritchett came to this conclusion by tracing the changing arguments, and his, his, uh, he's a really funny guy. He's very. Um, a man of few words and very funny, and it's it's called swimming or smoking, it's, and and you I can't go through it in this time, but it's a very funny way that he presents <clears throat> how we got to this place. But I'm giving you the the pedantic descriptive version of his cool PowerPoint, which is on the web. Uh, he says he what he did is he traced the changing arguments that the U.S. government used over several decades in order to support the fact that a large part of its foreign aid regarding poverty was just birth control and early abortion distribution. He says that first they characterized the birth control as defusing the population bomb they claimed was responsible for poverty. But then what happened is you had this massive population deceleration in the 90s, which is still going on. And then they noticed that there were very differential outcomes in countries' GDPs, so gross domestic products, that were unrelated to population. It became clear that while population was related to poverty, it was not the primary phenomenon driving poverty. And you can read guys who are very well respected in the population field with no political agenda, in addition to Lant Pritchett, Amartya Sen, for instance, in the New York Review of Books, who point out the same thing. Population is not the the main phenomenon driving poverty. Furthermore, Pritchett points out, studies were showing no real relationship between contraceptive inputs, the price and ease of availability of contraception, into a population, and fertility outputs. People were actually just having the number of children that they thought they could manage or needed in their situation. They weren't having less children with more contraception or more children with less contraception. That it wasn't working out on paper. And he also points out the fact that people were, prior to the advent of modern birth control, actually regulating their own fertility with respect to their own situations. (coughs) This leads Pritchett to ask, so why did the US continue to make birth control such a leading edge of its its, uh, foreign assistance? And he concludes the reason is, sexualityism. The belief that being able to express yourself sexually is hindered if children are linked to it or even if it has to be in the context of a relationship. And because being able to express yourself sexually is the sine qua non of freedom, that you had to make birth control available full stop, even if it had no impact on population or poverty. It is simply about aversion of human freedom. Sex, express self, create identity, no children. <clears throat> you see the same conclusion in different words in that book. You may have read Broken Promises by Edward Green. He's a Harvard University AIDS researcher. And for a while, he was an official with UNAIDS. What a book, i got to tell you. He, in this book called Broken Promises, <clears throat> he goes through in great footnoted detail that even when condoms were not solving the AIDS problem overseas, the continued insistence upon them as the leading policy by the U.S. and the U.N., over and above alternative suggested methods beginning with marital or even just partner fidelity. And he concludes, as did Pritchett, funny, two guys at Harvard coming to this conclusion, right, (coughs) that what was really being protected is sexual expression. and and that children were considered to be a constraint on this. Now, it's not difficult to find this philosophy of human sexuality at all in the domestic policies, and very particularly of the current administration in Washington. The first is a series of domestic policies, and actually some also international, with regard to um, same-sex attraction and people with same-sex attraction, or people who are bisexual or transgender. You have the federal government's recent series of statements supporting (coughs) various international rights for persons with same-sex attraction. These statements are being made at the UN. They're being made by Hillary Rodham Clinton at um, State Department events. Uh, You have the follow-up on this with the White House Office of the Press Secretary recently saying that ending discrimination against LGBT community is, quote, central to US commitment to protecting human rights abroad. President Obama's formal opposition recently registered to the North Carolina referendum, a state referendum, uh, to declare marriage between one man and one woman, okay? Formally opposed to that. Uh, Also earlier this week, Michelle Obama has been hitting the stump on her husband's political campaign and said that it was important to elect her husband again because he would then control Supreme Court appointments, which justices would then decide, among other things, whether same-sex attracted people could quote, love someone they choose. This is a code for same-sex marriage. She is reaching out and going to various lesbian and gay fundraisers who are providing an enormous amount of money for the Obama campaign, really stepped up this year according to Politico, and suggesting to them that they need to elect him because the Defense of Marriage Act cases will be coming to the Supreme Court and that they should make sure that he will appoint the justices to decide them. It does not appear, in summary, in connection. Oh, and by the way, uh, the Obama administration, I don't know if you're aware of this, before they abandoned their defense of the Defense of Marriage Act, they said they can't defend it, they don't believe it's constitutional. It's a darn good thing they did stop defending it between you and me and gave it over to Congress because in their briefs in the federal courts, they said that states did not even have a rational interest in supporting marriage between a man and a woman because it linked parents to children. They said that wasn't even a rational assertion and that they refused to set it forth as an interest that the federal government had in state laws and marriage. That's very scary stuff that they, they could go that far. So we are very grateful that they, they stepped back. Um, So it does not appear then, in connection with the wide variety of statements and policies and positions the administration has been taking regarding same-sex attracted persons and couples, that the federal government holds that sex is important because of its link with procreation. It's just, it's intrinsically not a feature of those relationships. And frankly, they're not even holding that sex is important on the basis of the bond between the couple, but rather that it is the federal interest that individual's decision to be in a sexual relationship with another person be not only not discriminated against, but given official state approval and status via the um, language of marriage. Thus, Michelle Obama's language that individuals should be judicially sanctioned to, quote, Love whomever they choose. Do you see the formula for that? That isn't even a marriage is two thing. It's individuals should have the state say to them, I'm glad that you can love X. It's taking marriage and it's not even making it a twosome anymore. In fact, if you look at uh, all the state court decisions, Iowa, Massachusetts, et cetera, Uh, Vermont, Hawaii, that got same-sex marriage or some other domestic partnership benefit started in their state, you notice that their formulation is not, I mean, after they say marriage is for the state to define, it's not given in nature, they say, what we are doing here is saying to individuals, we respect your choice of sexual partner. So you see they've taken marriage down to the individual here. And they've taken sex also down to individual expression of who it is that on the other side of their sexual expression they would like it to be on or with, okay? We also see evidence of sexualityism in the context of sex ed programs, right? That the federal government has gotten behind. Um, It's been a long journey. I wrote an article, it was published in the the Akron Law Review, and it's called Beyond the Sex Ed Wars, uh, Disadvantaged Single Mothers Search for Communion. And in it I I chronicle the federal sex ed programs. They are now behind 28 particular programs that were decided by a, a pretty, you know, a not disinterested researcher Uh, to be evidence-based. If you ever want to see a a critique of each of these programs, given that so many of you here are in science and you know what it takes to do a good study, right? And that it's great if it could be replicated. It's great if the sample that was studied wasn't a self-selected or snowball sample. It would be great if you had a representative sample. It would be great if you weren't just taking people's own self-interested statements about what the situation is. It would be great if it was longitudinal. It would be great if you measured people for longer than two to six months after an event to see what the correlations or conclusions was, all this stuff would be great, but you find that in most of these 28 studies, not any of those things were done. Um, And uh, Valerie Huber over at the National Abstinence Education Association has actually got a critique of each of them. Very good. She has a, a, uh, I want to say she has like a an OBGYN who specializes in young women, and then she has other scientists who've looked at these and analyzed just their scientific credibility, which really, that's the kind of analysis we need. And um, these are not, they, they used always evidence based programs. Ooh, you know, when I, do, I was on an NPR program debating five women on the other side of the preventive health care mandate, as usual, and one of them said, Science has spoken, and I'm like, Ooh, science, I'm scared now. You know, <laughs> like, wow, the federal government's version of science, shut me up. I mean, right, no, it's terrible, <laughs> but you really do have to look at what they're saying their conclusions are, right? And Valerie Huber has done this, and these evidence based programs. If you look at them closely, and I I did that in another paper in that Beyond the Sex Ed Wars paper, what you see is a tendency toward teaching young single people the extreme importance of sexually expressing oneself in accordance with one's deepest desires and feelings. Sex is not a, a, a twosome thing in these. There, there's even the most widely distributed uh, sex uh, ed pamphlet in the United States was created by SICUS, right? Sexuality Education and Information Services of the US. And I, I don't wanna go on and on, but, but, cause it's gross and hey, we're in this chapel, but one of the um, things is like how to masturbate. You might wanna do it alone, you might wanna do it in public. If, it, if that's how you wanna express yourself, that's, I mean, Okay, so this sexual expressionism, being yourself, whatever that is in your head, there are no there's no transcendent reality. There's no moral framework. There's no objective good. There's no other people in the room with you if you don't want them to be. It's so weird. Um, you also have the fact that in the 2013 budget proposed by the White House, uh, President Obama has proposed that all Title V abstinence funds, okay, which would imply sort of an absence of, of expressing whatever you feel like sexually, be redirected to um, programs that include contraception which is clearly, I don't know how he's going to get away with it, because there's actually a statute that says you can't do that. But he has put all those funds and redirected them out of the abstinence, um, statutes into the uh, comprehensive sex ed statutes. Um, frankly, we also have this week, you may have noticed at the UN, it just happened yesterday or the day before, the US in charge of a particular part of a document at the United Nations railroaded a international right to contraceptive access for every woman into a UN document. And apparently uh, the negotiations that um, were, were prior to it were closed door and quite heavy handed. Um, and so it's a huge part of U.S. policy right now. Now the most prominent example of sexualityism that I can think of right now and on the minds of many uh, is the new, quote, preventive health care mandate. And I want to spend a little time with this for you, with you because right now this is the stand on which we are fighting for religious freedom. So I, there's lots of information here that I want to give you. I want you to have it. I want you to use it. Um, I, I, this is the grassroots, if, if you care, you better do something. You know, I'm, I'm really not like, apocalyptic, generally speaking, <laughs> but really, historically speaking, if we lose this one, um, it would be very, it will go very bad for us, both as people who are pro-life and people who are religious. So this preventive health care mandate, right, it gets floated last August 2011 after Department of Health and Human Services Uh, as allowed under the Affordable Care Act, the Health Care Reform Bill from 2009, decides to populate the category of preventive health care services that was in the Affordable Care Act, which said the Secretary of Health and Human Services gets to populate, okay? They consult the nonpartisan blah, blah, Institute of Medicine at the National Academy of Sciences. And they come back and in a really big fat report, say that all FDA drugs and devices that are contraceptives and sterilization and the morning after pill, both Ella and Plan B, must be made available in every health insurance plan without a copay, Okay, This is based on, if you go, I have the IOM report. You can easily get it. Um, It's from last August. The entire recommendation for... Uh, all these contraceptives as preventive health care comes from pages somewhere in the late 80s, early 90s of that study based on two whole studies, both of those studies written by strong supporters of abortion, both affiliated with Planned Parenthood's research arm, the Guttmacher Institute. So both of the studies on which they base it come from the premier abortion and birth control provider in the U.S., These studies, you go get them, and you read them, and they showed that for limited periods of time, a few birth control distribution programs either lowered rates of so-called unintended pregnancies, a notoriously slippery term, and doctors here know that, um, among limited populations for a limited period of time, or lowered abortion rates for a limited period of time. Very tiny groups of people, tiny periods of time, Limited results measured. What they don't do, because they could not do, is to suggest that these programs, massive expenditures on birth control, lowered rates of unintended pregnancy, abortion, or out-of-wedlock births below what they were before the government handouts got started. No, they took drastically high rates of these bad problems that followed upon giant government programs and lowered them a little. But then, overall, you'll see they've gone back up. But that that is the basis of the science in the IOM report. Health and Human Services proposes a reg that religious institutions can only be exempt from this preventive health services mandate if they hire and serve primarily people of their own faith. This is a statute, word for word, that was drawn from the religious exemption crafted by the ACLU and used first in California and then in New York and made it through the Supreme Courts of both California and New York, but never made it to the U.S. Supreme Court for evaluation. So, California and New York, it made it through the law. It said that uh, the Constitution was not violated by these narrowly drawn religious exemptions. On its face, Um, This system looks a little ideological to you, this outcome. But you scratch the surface and it looks really ideological. (laughs) And let me scratch that surface for you. First, the composition of the team at the Institute of Medicine. The Alan Guttmacher Institute, formerly of Planned Parenthood. The American uh, College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, so you all know is formally pro-legal abortion. John Santelli, a pro-abortion and pro-contraception author, one who writes for Alan Guttmacher Institute, who's also one of the studies they cited. The National Women's Law Center and the National Women's Health Network, who I regularly debate on the radio about this. The Planned Parenthood Federation of America and Sarah Rosenbaum, the federal government's chief friend in uh, George Washington Medical School and supporter of unlimited contraception and abortion. I testified against her in Congress What month is this, March? I don't know, it was like last fall or last summer or something, and she's a really very hardcore supporter. So that was the panel of consultants. No religions, no opposition. Even with such a stacked panel, there was a dissenting opinion that called the IOM report filtered through a lens of advocacy, subjective, and not based on good studies. Even with that stacked panel that there was a dissenting report. The other thing you will notice, if any of you care to dig out a 1995 report that the Guttmacher Institute wrote and delivered to the Clinton administration while they were considering a big healthcare reform bill, they proposed a a conclusion with almost identical language to the IOM report as an insider report to the Clinton administration. And they said in that report in 1995, you have to make sure that the um, birth control is offered directly to the employees and their beneficiaries, including their minor daughters, but you must do it without a copay, or otherwise the parents will be able to see what their daughters are doing. The copay keeps it private. The language, the similarity between what IOM and then HHS recommended, and what Guttmacher told the Clintons they should put in their report, is almost word for word in many parts, Okay, so very ideological. It also seems ideological if you consider that 9 out of 10 insurance policies also already cover birth control. It also seems ideological when you learn from the CDC that 98% of women who have ever had sex have used contraception at some point. It is also ideological when you go and look at both qualitative and quantitative studies of single mothers Some of the best studies done, neither left nor right people, just good studies, that indicate that access and affordability of contraception is not an issue for women when they're thinking about whether or not they're going to use it. It also seems very ideological when you consider the amount of federal and state money already going into birth control. And if you just think about this, listen to this. You have 4,000 Title X clinics handing out contraception since 1970. 4,000 Title X clinics handing it out, mostly for free. 69% of their clients are means-tested poverty line. 31% are anywhere above the poverty line. They are uh, getting $317 million a year from the federal government. You also have the fact that Medicaid reimburses nothing but birth control at the 90% rate and that a lot of states have filled in the last 10% and made it free to women. You have 600 school-based or school-linked clinics under the Maternal and Child Health Grants. You have the federal government and state governments funding hundreds of millions of dollars to Planned Parenthood, who hands out contraception cheap or for free. You have community health centers, which are currently serving 20 million Americans, and the New England Journal of Medicine estimates that that will go up to about 40 million in the next five to eight years through the health care law. And they hand out birth control. Low cost to free. Now come on, people. Right? It was pointed out by the Chariscura Foundation in New York that New York City alone handed out nine million condoms last year, just one city, and that their uh, their abortion rates are still like in the 50 to 60 percent rate in some districts. It also seems ideological when you consider that literally millions of people are completely exempt from the Affordable Care Act, all of its provisions, not just the preventive health care mandate via grandfathered plans because Obama made the political promise, if you have your health care, you can keep it. So you have like 50 million Americans exempt under grandfathered plans. The Amish are exempt. You have certain kinds of, um, of, of like health care cooperatives, where people provide it for one another, who are exempt. You have employers like McDonald's and others who have been granted special exemptions because the law allows the secretary to just grant exemptions. Small businesses are exempt, but religious institutions are not exempt. Fascinating, huh? If you're not Amish, that is. It is also seems ideological when you look at the amount of time and creative resources this preventive health care mandate is occupying at the White House. I don't know how this president sleeps for thinking about ways to make female, and by the way, it's only females. The little footnote 2 in last Friday night's HHS reg says no male contraceptives or vasectomies are covered. This is just on women to take this stuff. Fascinating, huh? So when there was initial outcry by religious leaders, even some Catholics on the left, our president himself comes out at a lengthy press conference and says, I'm going to find a way to make insurance companies do something they have never done. I think Charles Krauthammer jokingly said this on TV, since, they were, since insurance was invented in medieval Italy, okay, which is to pay for something for free. Okay, They're going to do it for free. When the church comes back and points out, we're still buying the policy that, let's face it, is going to economically pay for this stuff, you have to read these regs to believe them. Thirty-four pages of regs came out last Friday night from HHS. It's like a grad school bull session, is what it seems like to me, where it says we're gonna maybe we'll create some kind of new institution whose main purpose will be to get contraception into the female employees of non-exempt religious institutions. Maybe we could get donations, which raises the interesting prospect that maybe Planned Parenthood will be funding these mid these intermediate associations that will make sure that our women and girls get their birth control. Donations from nonprofits They're just throwing stuff out there to try and meet the church's objection that we're not going to pay for a policy. The, the government say, don't worry, we're going to find donors. We'll get that contraception in there. You just stop worrying about it. Not at all attentive, and I don't even have time to go in this, to the long line of Supreme Court decisions and Court of Appeals decisions that say the federal government can't reach its hands into religious institutions and and shape religion. If, if, the, if the, I don't like the metaphor, but if the metaphor means anything to American people, that there has to be a separation of church and state, then the idea of the government coming in between Catholic hospitals, Catholic universities, Catholic social services, and saying, employees, look here, we're an institution outside, but our sole function is to make sure that you get your birth control. That's not meddling with the internal affairs of Catholic institutions. You really have to read those regs. They're boring, but they're worth it for a laugh, Okay, And then this would be comical, right, if it wasn't deadly serious and seems to cry out in the words of some observers for an analysis of why we think in our society contraception should should be available for free, but food and medicine for crippling diseases should not. Think about it, Okay. Finally, on the ideological guess here, is the shrill rhetoric that's been accompanying all this, right? The secretary of Kathleen Sebelius, a couple days after she issues the regs, goes in front of the leading abortion rights action political group in the United States and says, we are in a war. We are in a war against those who would deny contraception. Former, former majority leader former majority leader, Nancy Pelosi, who claimed that those who disagree with the administration on this want women to, quote, die on the floor. Okay, a little hyperbolic here. And all this, all this for a policy that is such a marginal increase in the amount of contraception you're pumping into the population, and in addition has absolutely no data to back up an idea that it will actually work. That it will do what the two studies on page 89 of the IOM report claim it will do, which is to lower rates of unintended pregnancy, out-of-wedlock births, and abortion. Why not? Look at the stats. Right? It's hard to measure unintended pregnancies; it's a squishy thing. It's like trying to nail Jello to a tree. But to the extent that you can get people to measure it, it looks like they were about one out of every three pregnancies when the pill was invented, and now they're one out of every two. Okay. Abortions rose from several hundred thousand, also a squishy measure in the 60s and early 70s, to 1.6 million, to now plateauing to about 1.3 million a year, and it seems to stay there, and we're actually increasing in some years recently. What about non-marital childbearing? The Department of Health and Human Services issued a report in 2008 that said, non-marital childbearing has increased among women of all age groups between 60 and 94, dropping off modestly in 95. However, from 1996 through today, it has continued to increase. Non-marital births as a percentage of all births have increased among teens of all ages, across racial and ethnic groups, and women of all ages. (coughs) Non-marital births as a percentage of US births, 5% in 1960, 18% in 1980, 28% in 1990, and 41% of all births in America today. And the population into which we're shoveling the largest percentage of birth control, the poor and disadvantaged, 60 to 70% non-marital birth rate. This is very well documented in law and economic literature, including in the most famous Uh, article by a Nobel Prize winning economist, George Akerlof from Berkeley in his famous article in the 1996 Quarterly Journal of Economics. And others have come along and and verified that. You've got Click and Stratman at Penn and George Mason. You've got Peter, I think it's Arsidiano at Duke is how you pronounce his name, who have explained that it was inevitable that this would happen. When you invent parachutes, more people die jumping out of planes. When you invented, the, when you made seatbelt laws mandatory, more people died of speeding. When AIDS drugs first came on the scene, there was more promiscuous sex, not less, right? What has happened is that you put this technology out there, more people engage in sexually risky behavior, you have more, not less, of all unexpected, unintended, unwanted outcomes related to uh, uncommitted sex. None of this is mentioned, let alone discussed, in the IOM report. And even since then, since last August, I've been on NPR five times with this information. Economists have been coming out about it. It was in the New York Daily News. It's been in the the, uh, Investor's Business Daily. Not a response by science or the administration to this data. How to account for this? I think it has got to be the theory that sexual expression, which is constrained if you link sex with children, is the good. It used to be, remember, that they linked birth control first in the US with the poor, right? And, and they're not doing that anymore. The poor, they, in, the, in the most famous book about birth control among the poor called uh, Promises I Can Keep, Why Poor Women Put Motherhood Before Marriage, the poor women there said, oh my gosh, I have as much birth control as I can swallow. I mean, they'd put it in the water if they could. That was their remark. It's not about poverty. And what's interesting is if you look at the the figures being put forward by the uh, administration and their allies to indicate why we really have to have this preventive health services mandate, um, they're putting forth middle and upper middle class women. Um, uh, the woman from the National Women's Law Center said that we needed this mandate because her unmarried graduate student daughter was spending too much on the pill to have sex with her boyfriends. Planned Parenthood in New York wrote an editorial in the New York Times that we needed this mandate because her divorced daughter, mother of two, needed birth control in order to, find, uh, to, to have sex with the men she was dating in order to find her next husband. And then, of course, the pièce de résistance, Uh, Ms. Fluke, the Georgetown University law student going before Congress, (coughs) an an upper-middle-class, unmarried student who says that her sexual life needs, I think she said she spent $3,000 a year on birth control. She needs it every week of the year, right? And these, they're not, you notice they're not even backing off that these are now their reasons. It's not poverty. It's not population. It's sexual expression by empowered women. Also, the judiciary in the United States is not playing hide the ball when it comes to an endorsement of sexualityism, right? This was explicitly adopted as a theory that the Supreme Court stands behind in the Casey decision. In that decision, the court said that women had a constitutional liberty interest in having an abortion because it was related to their making the shape of their universe, finding their identity. Now think about this chain of reasoning, right, about the meaning, what sex means. One, things that allow a person to express their identity and the shape of their particular universe are constitutional liberties. Number two, abortion is one of these uh, identity-shaping, universe-creating rights or or, uh, things that a woman does in her life. What does abortion do? It preserves the ability to be child-free following sex. In the Casey decision, Sandra O'Connor said explicitly that women have been depending on abortion for decades now to back up their contraception when it fails so that they can have sex without children. Four, underlying this entire chain of reasoning is the the, the necessity of preserving sex as child free. Only abortion guarantees that. Most women seeking abortions have used birth control in the month they got pregnant, it didn't work, and that this is a matter of self-identity. This was echoed by President Obama in his January 22nd celebration of Roe v. Wade this year, where he said he supports legal abortion so that little girls can grow up to have the same chance as little boys can. In other words, that is, he wants them to be able to have sex without children, with abortion as the ultimate backup, because being childless is to be equal and free. Sexual expressionism in its pure form. Second, very quick, my second and third points are very quick, I just wanted to lay out the the evidence for it, is that sexualityism is not in women's interest, right? The first failure, and you see this in all the literature, I recommend to you Mark Regneris's Premarital Sex in America, Dona Freitas, Sex and the Soul, Christian Smith, um, um, what's it called, Uh, uh, Lost in Transition, all qualitative studies of emerging adults, showing that uh, women, are really the losers in the new sex mating and marriage market made possible by the separation of sex and babies. That what you have in economic terms is that when you have women available who will have sex for a very low price, that the price of all women goes down. Right? Because there's always someone out there who says, well, I, you know, I'm not going to take a dollar. I'll take 10 cents. I'll take a quarter. I'm, meaning I'll have sex earlier and earlier in, in the dating relationship if you even get that far. The leading psychologist of emerging adults said to me at a conference that most people who come to him for counseling now, for marriage falling apart, talk about the sex they had before they were dating, you know, that, that non-relationship sex. It's now an accepted term I'm seeing in the sociological literature. So women's price goes down. Women get caught in a prisoner's dilemma. Together, they could all set a higher price for themselves, but individually they feel if I don't give in here and they're on a one-on-one with this guy, this campus, this office, they better give in. They each made an individual decision perceived to be best for themselves. That's the classic prisoner's dilemma. They had the sex. More of them are doing it on the idea that the technology of birth control will prevent them from the bad outcomes. Men refuse shotgun marriage because they should have used birth control and now abortion is available. And what do you get? You get um, more out of wedlock births, abortions, depression, post-abortion syndrome, et cetera. There is even a book or an article out by two economists at Penn, Stevenson and Wolfer, called The Paradox of Women's Declining Happiness that says, wow, the sexual revolution gave women everything we thought, but maybe there's something here we're not seeing. It's a fascinating economic article. The second thing women are not getting, and I think this is even more controversial, it's not controversial maybe to say that women don't like uncommitted sex, although in some circles that is controversial. Um, I've had email comments on articles of mine where people are going, I just can't get enough sex. um, And I don't care who it's with. And, okay, all right, all right, so you exist. I don't think you're in the majority, but you exist, and you have just proven it, thank you. But I do think that an even more controversial claim, than that women don't want a lot of uncommitted sex, is that sexualityism is a failure because it is leading to more cohabitation, later marriage, less fertility, and fewer children. And I think it's very controversial to say that women would like to get married before it's difficult to have children. They would like to get married before. It's hard to get married. It's hard to meet someone. You're, you're just a around the country. Uh, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, I think it was in the 90s, tried an ad campaign where they suggested to women that their fertility began to decline in their 30s. And it was defaced with four-letter words by women in the Washington DC metro. Very controversial to say to women, maybe you ought to think about having children sooner than later. I contend that women would like to be able. It doesn't mean they don't want to finish their education. It doesn't mean they don't want to make a contribution in all the arenas. Feminism only got us contraception and abortion, right? It didn't get us any, anything toward work-life balance. To the extent we have it, we fought for it one woman at a time, right? So they didn't give us that. So the idea that it would be good to have children earlier is really controversial. But I think that sexualityism is going against women's preferences in that regard. Uh, finally, and I'll just spend a few minutes setting this up because it's pretty obvious, right? Who's the biggest opponent of sexualityism? Well, who would be? Who has the mitre with the target on it? <laughs> okay, it's us. Now, I'm not saying that all religious freedom. Controversies in the United States are about sexualityism. I mean, we have tension with new immigrant religions. We always have the fear that religion is irrational or violent or against women. There's all this sort of stuff out there, generally. But the fact is that the most pronounced opponent of religious freedom right now is sexualityism. Um, and I, you just, in the terms of the, 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 the number of current threats to religious freedom, where are they coming from? People who want us to pay for birth control at religious institutions. People who want religious institutions to, and religious individuals to be forced to recognize and facilitate same-sex marriage. Um, I heard the saddest story from a young woman in D.C. the other day. Since D.C. has made same-sex marriage legal, this young woman had been providing wedding gowns and flowers and photographers free. She got like a consortium of people who knew that some of the poorest people in D.C. were not marrying because they didn't want to just have what they call a downtown wedding, just go to the Justice of the Peace. She was helping them put together the trappings of a wedding for free. She had to go out of business because she's not allowed to offer her services to the public she doesn't do same-sex weddings. So she was offering them to the poorest communities in D.C., but she can't do that anymore. We also are being told we have to go along with facilitating um, uh, same-sex parenting, that we have to go along with abortion. The ACLU, the crafter of this religious exemption that we're fighting for now, uh, against now, um, is sent, sent a letter to... Um, uh, Health and Human Services, about a year ago, saying that Catholic hospitals were violating um, a provision of the Emergency Medical Treatment Act because they weren't performing abortions on women who needed them in an emergency basis. And then there also, of course, is their desire for us to actually recognize the good that we have to say. This is the old Lincoln Douglas debate that's something that we will not believe and we do not believe is right and that we must cooperate and say that same-sex practices are something that we believe to be, to be a good for the human person. You know in Canada it's very famous that the Human Rights Commission brings you know, ministers and religious clergy before them. You know in the UK that families who announce that they are Christian and believe in what Christianity believes are no longer allowed to foster children because it might be that they pass on uh, their disapproval of homosexual acts to foster children. In the U.S. in Massachusetts in California and elsewhere, we have mandatory books in our schools for children that promote the idea that same-sex and opposite-sex relationships, that there's absolutely no difference between them in terms of their personal or social goods. Why is the church being targeted on this? It's pretty obvious. What we stand for is not with the opposite of sexualityism. I also think, frankly, that this fight over redefining the meaning of sex is also about redefining male-female relationship, redefining the meaning of the relationship between our body and soul, redefining our very givenness, right? It's a recapitulation of original sin, in a way, if you really think about it, that we refuse to accept we are who we are, and that we can't just say, this is not so. I will tell you that is not true. This means that. Even though everything in my body and my mind and social outcomes indicate that this means this, I tell you, this does not mean this. That is just social construction. This means that. Which is just another way of saying, God, you know, I want to be equal to you. I want to create. I want to give things the meaning they have. They have no natural meanings. I think that's, and the church is the chief, will not move, on the notion that there is objective reality in natural law. Finally, the church stands in the way of the idea that all technology and materialism and increased material outcomes is progress. There's brilliant parts, in particular of Space Salvi, where Pope Benedict specifically rejects what he calls the myth of progress, that as long as technology is moving forward, the human person, qua person, qua person, made in the image and likeness of God, qua, made for communion, is moving forward. And he says, no, every generation has to accept and live out the truth for itself. So we are the chief opponent of the notion that technology or increased material wealth or social prominence or any of the things that, that contraception and abortion represent in women's lives, according to the government, are progress. So finally, what can we do about this? Well. Several things. There is a lot of hope uh, coming from the empirical literature that's indicating that the human outcomes of sexualityism are taking their toll in particularly upon the very groups that they allegedly were made for, women and those least privileged. So the poorest Americans, minority Americans, immigrant Americans, Americans who don't have privileged education are suffering the personal and economic and educational and emotional consequences. of of living a life that looks like sexualityism. And that evidence is gathering, and it can be marshaled and spoken about. There is also the fact that um, we can point out that when we do live in accordance with an understanding of human sexuality that flows from understanding body-soul, you know, a theology of the body kind of thing, that in a strictly utilitarian measure of things, it produces good outcomes. There's a high utility to living that sort of life. Your children benefit, you benefit, the people around you benefit. It turns out people who live this way even vote more. Isn't that interesting? They even go to the polls more. They give more money. They're good citizens, right, of the kind that society wants more of. I think, frankly, we also have on our side the idea that the, the very little Americans know about separation, one of the things they do know is that it's scary if the government reaches into religious institutions and starts telling them what's what. And, and, and I've noticed that when I give talks about religious freedom to various audiences, if I say things like religious liberty and religious freedom, it's n- people aren't quite as responsive as when I say the government reaching its hands directly into religious ministries and telling them to do this or that in the way they live out their Christian ministry or their Jewish ministry or whatever. So to to the extent Americans' uh, sole understanding of religious freedom is separation. The government shouldn't run religion and religion shouldn't run the government. There's, there's, There's some gain to be made by pointing out that that's what the government is trying to do here. Finally, I do think we do have to acknowledge the legitimacy of human rights claims that sometimes do clip the wings of religious freedom, right? People are making a religious claim to do bad things, abuse women, right? Or, or racially discriminate, right? Then we have to say, you know what? That That claim of religious freedom at some point does run headlong into the good for the human person. How can we reach a conclusion on that? We have to look at what is human flourishing. And if there's a claim from a religion that what they're claiming to be religious freedom is contrary to human flourishing, we have to judge it. We can't say we're simply whatever religion says, because through time, religion has said some things that are problematic, various religions, right? So we can't be religious freedom and the society has nothing to say. That would be, I believe, irrational and unhelpful. but, But if you look at the question of what is human flourishing, what is true equality, what is true feminism, then the government's conclusion about its policy and what religions, particularly Roman Catholicism, want to do should come to the same place. That's the beauty of being religion that opens its eyes both to faith and to reason. So in conclusion on this, very briefly, you know, I think we are at the point where, where a lot of bombs are being dropped on us, right? When, and, though, by the way, John Stewart took me on another time the week later. I, I did this letter for women that's now got 23,000 women's signatures, and it ended up being read on the Senate floor into the record. It's an open letter to the Obama administration and Sebelius, and it's reprinted at this website, Women Speak for Themselves, right? I started it with 12, 24 women, and it got to 23,000. Um, so there's a lot of great people out there um, uh, agreeing with us. But um, so um, it was read on the Senate floor. John Stewart plays a part of it where I talked about women getting immiserated in the sex, mating, and marriage market and suggested that one of the bad outcomes was empty sex. And, and Stewart looks at the camera and he goes, she says that like it's a bad thing. And so I was famous again for all the wrong reasons. And my students pointed it out to me. And I thought to myself, and I, yeah, I said to my husband every once in a while, more than a little actually, there's a reason why I sleep with a pillow over my head. You know, It's just to kind of forget what happened that day and go on and get up again and get strong tomorrow. Being made fun of, and he made fun of my hair too, which was really the ultimate insult. Um, can I tell you that? That was worse. If he had made fun of my teeth, I would never get up and fight again. Um, cause I, I, My parents didn't have enough money to fix them after all my siblings' teeth got fixed, and I hate them on TV. So anyway, but my husband, my dear, dear husband, he looks at me and he says to me, honey, they don't drop the bombs unless they're over the target. And he said so clearly, whatever it is that you're putting out there on this makes them really mad, so just keep doing that. So I thank you very much.